All right, good morning, everybody. We are on our final section of Hebrews chapter 11. And so, as we finish up chapter 11, let's start this morning with a prayer. Almighty God, we do ask that the word preached may land now on fertile soil where it would grow to produce 30, 60, 100 times what has been planted. And we ask that you would be with the messenger, that he may speak your truth boldly and clearly, and that we in turn may glorify you as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 to 40. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 to 40. If you have a pew Bible that you can find in the seat in front of you, you can find it on page 948. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 to 40. If you found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive that what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. After today, you might feel like this is a chapter that is much needed, is very much needed in our church today. It seems as though people are falling away from the faith left and right. Like the Bible would say, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We today worship the experts. We extol them to a degree where we even sing songs about these experts. We extol nature. We call it Mother Gaia. We are more concerned with the welfare of pets and animals than we are about our babies and children who are being slaughtered daily in the thousands in our country. So why should we be surprised when former professing Christians are now, quote-unquote, deconstructing their faith, abandoning biblical principles, and denying that there is only one God? 
The Bible in Romans 1 continues on, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You might be thinking about the current status of the world, our country, even our neighborhood. And the question that we might ask is, can the church survive? Will the church survive? I personally strongly believe that the institutional church has become so weak, so frail now, that only the right preaching of the Word of God with the attitude and hearts of the listeners like the Berean church can bring us back to a place of true repentance. Just going over the Westminster Larger Catechism of this week and the week prior. And I am thankful, however, that we are not left alone in this endeavor. But we actually have chapter 11, the heroes of the faith to provide us with an example to follow. And so this is the final section of the exemplars of the faith. Each character and each characteristic of faith had been previously introduced. It was displayed for us to see, to appreciate, to mimic, to follow, to meditate on. And it was previously introduced with the deliberate repetition of the words, by faith, by faith Moses, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, by faith Rahab. And here we see that the, what the author will do to try and aggregate and finish off the rest of the periods after the Mosaic era is he just has one single phrase of by faith. And although the author, even in the previous portion of this chapter, abridged many of the heroes' lives, like Moses was put into a paragraph, Abraham was put into a paragraph. But we'll see even a more dense compacting of these heroes' lives. Such as it may be then, even richer, in my opinion, if we are able to mine this passage for its riches. So let's go into the passage. In verse 32, he writes, and what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. And what more shall I say denotes a rhetorical phrasing. It notates what you might really feel when you first hear this phrase. There's a limited amount of time. There's a limited amount of space if you're writing. And then he mentions six men in quick succession, and it's seemingly in random fashion, but he's using an oratorical vice. He's using an oratorical device called paralipsis. Paralipsis is things like if I would say, I dare not mention my mortal enemy Sam and his conniving ways. But then if I say, I dare not mention, I did mention by saying, I dare not mention, and I gave you a characteristic of my mortal enemy. And so that is a form, an oratorical device of paralipsis, 
when he says, for time would fail me, and then he mentions it, what he is doing is in, in an oratory, when you speak, that's why we believe that this letter was actually first spoken, like a sermon. It's a flourish. It's actually used to highlight rather than what seems to be at first a dismissal. He's not dismissing these judges and prophets and kings by mentioning them, but by mentioning them, he's actually bringing the reader to ask, well, what about Gideon? What about Barak? What about Samson? What about Jephthah? What about David? What about Samuel? And so, in some of the Saturdays, I have, when I had time, I've been going over some of the judges, and actually Sam went over Gideon too, and if I have more time on Saturdays, I would love to go over the rest of the judges like Samson. But here, if you look at the order, and if you've been following, if you know the book of Judges, then the order here seems random too, and it's good that we need to set up. This is a setup. We need to know the setup. The order seems random because it's not in the book of order. Uh, it's not in the order in the book of Judges. Otherwise, it would have been Barak first, Gideon second, Jephthah third, and then Samson last. And then obviously, if you look at the passage here, Samuel would come before David, but in the passage, Samuel comes after David. So the order is a little bit mixed up. And why would he do that? When obviously people who would know the Bible would listen to this and like, why are you mixing up the order? And I believe it's a literary method that was also used, by the way, in 1 Samuel 12, 11, where there is a seeming indifference to chronology, but it's to spotlight the whole, not necessarily the individual, while still putting some emphasis on the individual. See, the fact that I have to say this means that I could have just read you the first verse. If you got it, you got it. Because People are not just blobs of these ideas of faith. You know how people want to clump you into just one kind of category? Oh, you're a Christian, right? Oh, you're a this or that. However, people have individual expressions, especially of faith that should be notated, appreciated, and meditated upon and learned from. And so this was a literary device, it's an oratorical device that shows us that these people were actually literal, actual warriors of the faith that lived through extraordinary times. Now, again, I'm not going to go over every detail of every single one mentioned, but because he does peruse kind of over them, let me give you a short summary of each person mentioned. Gideon had an overwhelming victory over the Midianites. It was so definitive that it's not remembered only in the book of Judges, but in the Psalms, in the book of Isaiah, in two places, he exercised a profound act of faith when he would take 32,000 men, and because God had instructed him to do so, he would take 32,000 soldiers that he had against the Midianites, who were more, by the way, and he would reduce it to 300. 300 isn't an army. It's just a band of ragtags. And what were these 300 men equipped with? They were equipped with clay jars and trumpets. 
but the clay jars that were broken and the trumpets that were blown, that strategy threw the Midianites into utter confusion. Chaos ensued. They started killing each other, and they started to flee. In Judges chapter 7, 22, it says this, that they fled as far as Beshita towards Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel, Meholah, by Tabith. If you look at these places, where did they flee to? It was northeast, southeast, and south. They spread out like a shotgun. They just spread out. They just ran. And how far did they run? These places were six to ten miles away. That means when they fled, they didn't just run and like, what? That, that's it? But they kept on running and running and running. So one time, some, a bunch of ragtag, 300 people break clay jars, blow their horns, and they are left scattered and fleeing up to 10 miles because of what 300 men did. That's the team that Gideon led. Barak was the military commander that was tasked to confront and defend his tribes from the Canaanite country and its mercenary leader, Sisera. He was a commander of this Canaanite army, and it says in the book of Judges that Sisera had a force of 900 iron chariots. 900 iron chariots would have been an unmatched technological prowess that day. It would have been completely lopsided. And at first, even though he didn't want to go to war without Deborah, when it came to the critical moment, he acted in faith and he went out. And the Lord, what he would do, he would disable all the chariots and make them fodder for Barak's army. Today, it would have been as if foot soldiers would have to go up against superior tech of tanks and warplanes, only to have God send a lightning storm to create an EMP to disable all the war machinery. But Barak would go on to annihilate his enemies. And who is Samson besides a well-known children's hero of the Bible? Although many times he was rash in his dealings, he acknowledged that his victories over the Philistines were a gift of God and in his last act, he asks God to empower him one more time to not only eventually kill more Philistines in his death than he ever did in his life, all the leaders, the generals, the rulers of the Philistines were there, up to 3,000, and he was able to kill them all. And who was Jephthah? Many might remember Jephthah for his rash vow, but he was a man of great devotion a superior warrior that was called to command and lead the Israel army to victory over the Ammonites. No one should be surprised about David. He holds the place in this list of exemplars and was distinguished and separated even as a young man and received approval from God who did numerous mighty deeds that we went over in 1 Samuel. And Samuel was the last of the judges and the first of the prophets, making him a leader in both senses. He was distinguished in his integrity and faith that God used him to lead the Israelites, God's people, for over 40 years. 
And just so that we don't miss it, the prophets are also mentioned in this first verse. The prophets are mentioned in a general way, but in the following description we can see whose impression is evoked by the listing of the traditions. But all these that are mentioned are there to show us that their faith informed their words and actions. Their faith informed their words and actions. And I think this is a lesson that we ought to keep in mind. Your words and your actions are informed by your faith. You can say that you believe and then eventually end up deconstructing the faith. But if you have faith, like these exemplars of the faith had, then your words and actions are reflected by the faith that you have. So let's move on. Verse 33 and 34. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Now if you number these deeds, these characteristics, there are nine clauses. And it might be easier to address them if we divide them into groups of three. So three of three. So the first section, the first three is conquer kingdoms, enforce justice, and obtain promises. Who do you think of? It reminds us of David and even Samuel. Number two, the second clause is stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword. Who does that remind us of? Well, Daniel and even his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, should immediately come to mind. And escaping the edge of the sword would have reminded the Hebrew listener of Elijah escaping from Jezebel or Elisha from Jehoram or Jeremiah from Jehoiakim, which would mean then the prophets. So the first one we see, it's the kings and the leaders. Number two, we see it is the prophets. And number three, we're made, that third clause of three, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. It's a clear example of the judges. So this is another example showing us what these exemplars of the faith did. This is the fruit of their faith. And here is, it's a final proof of the triumphs of their acts of faith. Now, now that we have this down, I hope it's clear because he just wants to mention it and then he's going to take a turn by going to verse 35. Read there, verse 35 with me, just the first section, women received back their dead by resurrection. This is a noticeable shift. It would have alerted the astute listener or reader to an oncoming transition. Who received back their dead from resur by resurrection? Who had their dead resurrected? Well, first you would think of the Sidonian widow from Elijah, maybe even the Shunammite from Elisha. And you would have noticed something. Why is this mentioned? It's mentioned, and why is this highlighted? The Sidonian widow, the Shunammite, by both Elijah and Elisha, were both outside of Israel. They were outside of Israel. And it's this mention by Jesus that should 
that should have reminded us of this passage. Jesus would mention this, and people would get so upset that they wanted to kill him even at the beginning of his ministry. People think that people wanted to kill Jesus at the end when they finally crucified him. But even in Luke chapter 4, this is what it says in Luke chapter 4. Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow outside of Israel. This is what Jesus is mentioning. And then he continues, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian outside of Israel. And this is what it says after. This, remember, this is chapter 4 of Luke. This is when Jesus first starts to preach. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their mist, he went away. What we're going to see is this mention here should have caught the listener's ear, should have caught the reader's eye, because what we're going to see going forward now is a cataloging of faith heroes that did not enjoy rich benefits in their life. But their faith and ultimately their deliverance came through their suffering and even death. The second part of verse 35 says this, some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. If you read this in the Greek, it is a very graphic statement. Torture would have evoked the image of a torture rack where the subject is stretched out over this rack, fastened, and then beaten. The Greek word here is timpanizo. Timpanizo, because they would be beat like one would beat a drum until their stomach muscle walls would collapse and you would die from internal injuries. That's what it meant when you heard the word tortured in the Greek. And refusing to accept release, the release is the word for ransom. The ransom that they needed to pay to be released was just simply to renounce God. Just renounce God. Say that you're not a Christian anymore. Deconstruct your faith. But these people refused to pay the price. In the Maccabean account, a 90-year-old scribe named Eleazar is given. He refused to pay the ransom by renouncing his faith and willingly chose the rack and endured a brutal beating. And this is what it says. When he was about to die under the blows, he groaned aloud and said, It is clear to the Lord in his holy knowledge that though I might have been released from death, I am enduring terrible sufferings in my body through this beating but in my soul I am glad to suffer these things because 
I fear him. Why did these martyrs stay resolute during their intense torture and suffering? How did they stay so strong and endure in their faith? It says here, so that they might rise again to a better life. They wanted a better resurrection. Notice how the resurrection of the women of the Sidonian was also given, and that was to compare. The sons that were given back to their mothers would eventually die. They would experience mortality again after that resurrection. What the martyrs longed for, what the people of faith longed for was a better resurrection. It is a qualitative distinction. Better resurrection is pointing to an eschatological faith. It is the final resurrection to life unending and life to the full. This eschatological faith is the source of resolute, enduring courage in the face of suffering and even death. Others may have escaped death, but they would endure mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. There are prophets that would endure such nasty cruelty, like Jeremiah, who was beaten, placed in prison. He was ruthlessly ridiculed and mocked. But how could he not say the things he said when it was the Lord that told him to say it. It's the Lord God that gave Jeremiah, the prophet, the conviction to speak God's word. How could he not say it? So he was ridiculed, mocked, beaten. He was thrown into a mud-filled cistern where he would almost starve to death if it were not for a Cushite official who would remove him later. Oftentimes, we are given this sober reminder that prophets of God endured intense suffering. Verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And this short almost terse set of statements now brings us to a general sense of what they did to God's prophets. Zechariah, the son of Jehodiah the priest, was stoned to death by the order of King Joash in the temple courtyard of all places in 2 Chronicles 24. And if you're familiar with the tradition surrounding the prophet Isaiah's death, when Isaiah prophesied of the destruction of the temple, his arrest was ordered. He fled into the hill country, and tradition has it that he hid in the trunk of a cedar tree. He was discovered when the king ordered that tree to be cut down, and because he took refuge in a tree trunk, they tortured Isaiah with a saw, and he was sawn in two. That's what it means to be sawn in two. It's referring back to the tradition of Isaiah. 
Some we saw escaped the edge of the sword, but many did not. The prophet Uriah, Jeremiah would write because Jeremiah was his contemporary. In Jeremiah 26, Uriah would flee to Egypt, but he was extradited. He was forcefully brought back, and he was brought back before the king when he was struck down with the sword, and his body was thrown, it says, into a commoner's grave with no markings at all. People were called to the prophetic office when they didn't even die a violent death, people that were called to the prophetic office were often, if not all, most times, called to a destitute and impoverished life. Elijah and Elisha would noticeably dress in sheepskin and goat hairs. But it would be these people, these people are what, <clears throat> are what the author of uh, Hebrews is writing about who lived lives of extreme suffering, who would herald the coming of Jesus Christ. They would proclaim the coming of the Lord to an utterly unworthy people. It says in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. Society did not deserve them. Humanity was unworthy of them. They were deprived of everything. But it says here, that they were more, worth more than the world. That's what it means. When it says the world was not worthy of them, that means they were worth more than the world. Even though they were worth more than the world, God would send them to the world to show us, to tell us about the coming of Jesus Christ. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You know, I can't even go camping. <clears throat> without being very, very uncomfortable. I think the last time I went camping with this church, I slept in my car. I can't handle it. Uh, my wife's nickname for me, among many other nicknames, is she calls me Bugman because it doesn't matter where we are, bugs are all attracted to me, mosquitoes, flies. Now it's lantern flies, apparently. They just land on me, and I just, I just can't get rid of them. But these, this is not just a simple camping trip. These are people who would wander for their entire lives in deserts, mountains, and go in and out of caves. They embraced a wretched existence. Why? Why? So that they could remain faithful to God. Verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. This may be the most epic ending, the most epic epilogue, and this is the conclusion to the chapter. We're already on it, because again, he goes about it quickly. This is the conclusion to the chapter of the heroes of the faith. First, this epilogue summarizes what we've been going over the past few weeks, that all these people were people of faith, but they did not receive the ultimate promise. Even though some of them that we saw received a portion of particular promises, they did not receive the eschatological promise, the definitive fulfillment of the promise of the eternal inheritance. Why? Was it due to their failure? You know, you read some of these guys like Moses and Jephthah and Gideon, and then you're reading these accounts like 
Look at these imperfect guys. Of course God didn't give them the ultimate gift. They're failures. And then you make yourself feel good too. Like when you read the Old Testament as a kid, you're like, look at these Old Testament Israelites. They keep on messing up. Ha ha, I'm so much better than them, aren't I? But if you read this chapter, that's not how the author describes them. These are the exemplars of the faith. That if we did our best, maybe we could mimic them. They are the cream of the crop, the hall of famers. So is it because of any failure of their own that they did not receive that definitive eschatological promise, the salvation of eternal life and inheritance with God? And the answer is no. That's what it's getting to. That's not why they didn't receive it. It says here that God had something better for us. So they were denied Christological perfection, a messianic perfection, until when? Until Christians could share in it. Until we could share in the promises that were given even to them. He, God, deferred the final and ultimate reward until Christ's coming because Christ was going to establish a new covenant. Who is brought in with the new covenant? We are. We are brought in with the new covenant. They were deferred so that God could make room for us. That's what it says. Christ's death and resurrection brings us into the fold of the church. Through now, which we have unfettered access to God, because of his ongoing and eternal, continuous, high priestly work. The curtain is torn. We can now enter. This is what the people in the past of faith, this is why they suffered, were even cut apart, sawn in two, were destitute, died, so that they could make room for us. And this is why we now share in this realized promise in Jesus Christ. It's because of God's ultimate sovereignty and grace then, we are allowed to share in the promise, promises of all those people before us. The promises deferred are also promises given to God's people, the church. And God is the one who allows us to share in it. You know, I've said this before, but I believe strongly that Christians have a unique privileged status that is given to us. It's shown to us in the plan of God. We are witnesses to the fulfillment of God's promise in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, and by Jesus Christ. So, now, hearing this epilogue, these exemplars of the faith aren't just there for us to mimic then. As well, we should, though. We should mimic what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. We should mimic these things. But they are to show us, to attest to us, what? God loves us. God, God's grace for us is immeasurable. And the sovereignty of God and His promises 
are irrevocable. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. The exemplars of the faith aren't there just for us to mimic, and I believe we should, but they are to show us and attest to us who God is. He is a God who loves us, who gives us His grace, and shows us by His sovereign hand that He holds us for all eternity, and nothing can take us away. You know, in this life, your faith will be tested it will. A hundred percent I can guarantee this. And this chapter is there not only to motivate us, it does motivate us, but this chapter is there not only just to give us hope, it's there to give us hope, but this chapter is there to give us the knowledge that we have been equipped to endure the testing of faith. No matter what season that you are facing. God is the one that will equip you and He will see you through because the promises deferred to the prophets before are realized in Jesus Christ and in Christ, nothing can separate you from God. So put your faith in God. He is your Lord and Savior. Give Him your loyalty and allegiance. Live your lives according to faith, glorifying our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this final portion of the 11th chapter of Hebrews. And we thank You that you, in your sovereign plan, in your incredible grace, in your faithful love for your people, you have given us these exemplars to show us how good it is to be in the household of God. And we ask now that we might live lives also according to the faith that we have been called to, that we would live as Jesus, as our Lord and Savior that we will proclaim the truth wherever you send us and ultimately give you glory. Let's take this time to pray. And perhaps uh, there is some truth to what was said in the very end, that you are going through a season, a testing of your faith. And lift it up to the Lord. Ask the Lord to strengthen you, empower you, to show you what has been shown to us in the Word, deeply and truly, that God is your God, and as you place your faith in Him, it is He, by His sovereign grace, that saves His people. Let's pray.